Hello and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. If you enjoy the podcast and wish to support this show, you can help support it by clicking on the support link in the description of any episode. I have also created a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. Narrated by John Curlis. A quote from William Shakespeare's Richard II, circa 1595. For God's sake... Let us sit upon the ground and tell sad stories of the death of kings, how some have been deposed, some slain in war, some haunted by the ghosts they have deposed, some poisoned by their wives, some sleeping killed, all murdered, for within the hollow crown that rounds the mortal temples of a king keeps death his court. Introduction At seven o'clock in the morning, on Friday, May 27, 1541, within the precincts of the Tower of London, an old woman walked out into the light of a spring day. Her name was Margaret Pole. By birth, blood and lineage, she was one of the noblest women in England. Her father, George, Duke of Clarence, had been the brother to a king, and her mother, Isabel Neville, had in her time been co-heir to one of the greatest earldoms in the land. Both parents were now long gone, memories from another age and another century. Margaret's life had been long and exciting. For twenty-five years she had been the Countess of Salisbury, one of only two women of her time to have held a peerage in her own right. She had until recently been one of the five wealthiest aristocrats of her generation, with lands in seventeen different counties. Now, at sixty-seven, ancient by Tudor standards, she appeared so advanced in age that intelligent observers took her to be eighty or ninety. Like many inhabitants of the Tower of London, Margaret Pole was a prisoner. Two years previously she had been stripped of her lands and titles by an act of Parliament which accused her of having committed and perpetrated diverse and sundry other detestable and abominable treasons against her cousin, King Henry VIII. What these treasons were was never fully evinced, because in truth Margaret's offences against the Crown were more general than particular. Her two principal crimes were her close relation to the king and her suspicion of his adoption of the new forms and doctrines of Christian belief that had swept through Europe during the past two decades. For these two facts, the one of birthright and the second of conscience, she had lived within London's stout, supposedly impervious riverside fortress which bristled with cannons from its whitewashed central tower for the past eighteen months. Margaret had lived well in jail. Prison for a sixteenth-century aristocrat 
was supposed to be a life of restricted movement tempered by decent, even luxurious conditions, and she had been keen to ensure that her confinement met the highest standard. She expected to serve a comfortable sentence, and when she found the standards wanting, she complained. Before she was moved to London, she spent a year locked in Cowdery House in West Sussex, under the watch of the unenthusiastic William Fitzwilliam, Earl of Southampton. The Earl and his wife had found her spirited and indignant approach to incarceration rather tiresome, and had been glad when she was moved on. In the Tower, Margaret was able to write letters to her relatives and was provided with servants and good, expensive food. Her nobility was not demeaned. Earlier in the year, Queen Catherine's tailor had been appointed to make her a set of new clothes, and just a few weeks previously, another order of garments had turned up, ordered and paid for directly by the king. Henry had also sent her a nightgown lined with fur, and another with Cypriot satin, petticoats, bonnets and hose, four pairs of shoes, and a new pair of slippers. More than fifteen pounds, roughly the equivalent of two years' wages for a common labourer at the time, had been spent on her clothing in just six months. As she walked out into the cool morning air, Margaret Pole could therefore have reflected that Although she was due to be beheaded that morning, she would at least die wearing new shoes. Her execution had been arranged in a hurry. She had been informed only hours previously that her nephew, the king, had ordered her death, a shockingly short time for an old lady to prepare her spirit and body for the end. According to a report that reached Ustas Chapuis, the exceptionally well-informed imperial ambassador to England, the countess found the thing very strange, since she had no idea of what crime she was accused, nor how she had been sentenced. Few, in truth, would ever quite understand what threat this feeble old lady could have posed to a king as powerful and self-important as Henry VIII. A thin crowd had gathered to bear witness, they stood by a pathetically small chopping block, erected so hastily that it was simply set on the ground and not, as was customary, raised up on a scaffold. According to Chapuis, when Margaret arrived before the block, she commended her soul to her creator and asked those present to pray for King Henry and Queen Catherine, the king's three-year-old son, Prince Edward, and the twenty-five-year-old Princess Mary, her goddaughter. But as the old woman stood talking to the sparse crowd, Chapuis put the number at a hundred and fifty. The French ambassador, Charles de Marillac, suggested it was fewer. A feeling of restlessness went around. She was told to hurry up and place her neck on the little piece of wood. The tower's regular executioner wasn't on duty that morning, he was in the north alongside King Henry, who had visited the farthest reach of his kingdom to dampen the threat of a rebellion against his rule. The tower's axe had therefore been entrusted to a deputy, a man of tender years and little experience in the difficult art of decapitation. Chapuis described him as a wretched and blundering youth. 
He was faced with a task wildly inappropriate to his years. Only one other noblewoman had been executed in England since the Norman Conquest, the king's second wife, Anne Boleyn. She had been beheaded in a single stroke with a sword by a specially imported French executioner. This was not that, and the hapless executioner knew it. When the signal was given to strike, he brought the weapon down toward the block. But he botched the job. Rather than cutting cleanly through Margaret's neck in one stroke, he slammed the axe's blade into the old woman's shoulders and head. She didn't die. He brought the axe down again and missed again. It took several more blows to dispatch her, a barbarous assault in which the inept axeman literally hacked the old woman's upper body to pieces. It was a foul and cruel butchery that would shock everyone who heard of it. May God in his high grace pardon her soul, wrote Chapuis, for certainly she was a most virtuous and honourable lady. Margaret Pole was at one level just another casualty of the religious wars that dominated the sixteenth century, in which followers of the old faith, Roman Catholicism, and various splinter groups of the new faith, Protestantism, sought to smite one another into submission. These wars took different forms. Occasionally they were fought between kingdoms allied to opposing faiths, but far more often the religious wars were civil and dynastic conflicts that ripped individual kingdoms asunder. This was certainly the case in England during the 1540s, and Margaret's execution in that sense represented a reforming king's deliberate strike against a powerful family who clung to the old faith. Yet her death could also be seen as the undignified final act in the long spell of non-religious aristocratic violence that had begun nearly a century earlier. These were wars of politics and personality that had sprung from a struggle for hegemony following the slow but catastrophic collapse of royal authority from the late 1440s onward. This conflict, usually assumed to have been closed on the accession of Henry Tudor as Henry VII in 1485, and his defence of the crown at the Battle of Stoke in 1487, in fact, continued to haunt 16th century politics long afterward. Certainly it played a role in Margaret Pole's death, for this old woman was one of the last surviving members of the Plantagenet dynasty and a living relic of what we now call the Wars of the Roses. Dozens of Margaret's immediate and extended family had fallen victim to these wars. Her father, George, Duke of Clarence, was twenty-eight when his brother, King Edward IV, had him executed for treason, drowned in a butt of the sweet Greek wine known as Malmsey in memory of which Margaret was said always to wear a tiny wine keg on her bracelet. Two of her paternal uncles had been killed in pitched battles in 1460 and 1485. Both of her grandfathers had also died on the battlefield, one ending his days with his head impaled on the city gates of York, a paper crown nailed to his skull. Margaret's brother Edward, styled but not officially recognised as Earl of Warwick, 
had spent most of his twenty-four years of life imprisoned in the Tower of London. Henry VII had ordered his execution by beheading in November 1499, when rumours spread of a plot to break him out of jail. Margaret's eldest son, Henry Pole, Lord Montague, was executed in January 1539. Her eldest grandson, Montague's heir, also called Henry, would also die while incarcerated in the Tower sometime after 1542. The whole history of the Pole family between the 1470s and 1540s was one of brutal destruction undertaken by three different kings. And in this, the Poles were far from exceptional. They were simply the last of the great aristocratic families to be persecuted to extinction in the Wars of the Roses. That England was used to killing its most illustrious men and women didn't detract from the profound shock that Margaret Pole's callous execution caused around Europe. By June the 13th, the news had reached Antwerp, and a week later it had spread to the imperial court. In early August, the Countess's second son, Reginald Pole, a renegade Catholic churchman who had risen to the rank of cardinal, wrote bitterly to Juan Alvarez de Toledo, Cardinal Archbishop of Burgos, that his mother had perished not by the law of nature, but by a violent death, inflicted on her by one from whom it was the last due, as he was her cousin. Reginald's only consolation in his mother's savage murder was that she had suffered a martyr's death to suffer as Christ, his apostles, and so many martyrs and virgins suffered, is not ignominious, he wrote. But Paul nevertheless went on to compare Henry VIII unfavorably to the ancient tyrants Herod, Nero, and Caligula. Their cruelty is far surpassed by the iniquity of this man, who, with much less semblance of justice, put to death a most innocent woman, who was of his own kin, of advanced age, and who had grown old with a reputation for virtue. To paint Henry VIII as a brute killer in a long line of otherwise virtuous kings was somewhat disingenuous. Henry was certainly capable of violence and cruelty toward members of his own family, but such were the times. Indeed, if anything could be said for Margaret's death, it was that it marked the end of the bloodbath that had been continuing on and off, since the 1450s. When her poor, mangled body finally dropped to the ground, there remained barely a single drop of Plantagenet royal blood in England, other than the little that flowed in the veins of Henry VIII and his three children. Nearly a century of butchery was coming to an end, not by choice, but by default. Almost all the potential victims were now dead. One of the earliest recorded uses of the phrase the Wars of the Roses came from the pen of the 19th century British writer and royal tutor Maria Lady Colcott. Her children's book, Little Arthur's History of England, was first published in 1835. In describing the violent upheaval that convulsed England in the 15th century, Colcott wrote, For more than thirty years afterwards, the civil wars in England were called the Wars of the Roses. She was right and she was wrong. The precise phrase isn't recorded before the first quarter of the 19th century, 
But the idea of a country torn in half by the rival houses of Lancaster and York, represented respectively by the emblems of red and white roses, went back in some form to the 15th century. Roses were a popular symbol throughout Europe during the Middle Ages, and their colours, whether deployed in politics, literature or art, were judged to have important and often opposing meanings. The 14th century Italian writer Giovanni Boccaccio used red and white roses in his Decameron to symbolise the entwined themes of love and death. Roses were doodled in the margins and illuminated letters in books of prayer, calendars, and scientific texts. Aristocratic families in England had included roses in their heraldic badges since at least the reign of Henry III in the 13th century. King Edward I had sometimes displayed the golden rose as a symbol of monarchy. But in the later 15th century in England, red and white roses began to be associated closely with the fortunes of rival claimants to the throne. The first royal rose was the White Rose, representing the House of York. The descendants of Richard, Duke of York, who asserted his right to the crown in 1460. When Richard's son, Edward, became King Edward IV in 1461, the White Rose was one of a number of symbols he used to advertise his kingship. Indeed, as a young man, Edward was known as the Rose of Rouen and on his military victories his supporters sang, Blessed be that flower. In later decades, the White Rose was adopted by many of those who chose to align themselves with Edward's memory, particularly if they wished to stake their claim to royal preeminence by virtue of their relationship to him. The Red Rose was far less common until it was adopted and promoted vigorously by Henry VII in the 1480s. The earliest quasi-royal use of the Red Rose was by Henry Bolingbroke, later Henry IV, who had his pavilions decorated with the flowers during his famous trial by combat against Thomas Mowbray in 1398. There is some slight evidence that Red Roses were also associated with Henry IV's grandson, Henry VI. But it was only after the Battle of Bosworth in 1485 that Red Roses flourished as a royal badge, representing Henry Tudor's, Henry VII's, claim to the crown through his connection to the old Dukes of Lancaster. The Red Rose was then used as a counterpoint to the White, puffing up the weak Tudor claims to royal legitimacy. To avenge the White, the Red Rose bloomed, wrote one chronicler, studiously following the party line after Bosworth. As king, Henry VII had his scribes, painters, and librarians plaster documents with red roses, even going so far as to modify books owned by earlier kings so that their lavish illuminations included roses of his own favoured hue. The red rose was more often invoked retrospectively, as its principal purpose was to pave the way after 1485 for a third rose, the so-called Tudor rose, which was a combination of white and red, either superimposed, quartered, or simply wound together. The Tudor rose was invented to symbolize the unity that had supposedly been brought about when Henry VII 
married Edward IV's daughter Elizabeth of York in 1486. Entwining the two warring branches, the houses of Lancaster and York together. The story this rose told was of politics as romance. It explained a half century of turmoil and bloodshed as a product of two divided families who were brought to peace by a marriage that promised to commingle the feuding rivals. When Henry VII's son, Henry VIII, came to the throne in 1509, the court poet, John Skelton, who grew up during the worst of the violence, wrote that the rose both white and red in one rose now doth grow. The idea of Wars of the Roses, and most important of their resolution with the arrival of the Tudors, was thus by the early 16th century a commonplace. The concept took hold because it offered up a simple, powerful narrative, a tale that made the world, if not black and white, then red and white. It implicitly justified the Tudors' claim to the crown. And to writers over the centuries, including the Tudor historians Edward Hall and Raphael Hollinshed, Elizabethan dramatists such as William Shakespeare, 18th century thinkers such as Daniel Defoe and David Hume, and 19th century novelists like Walter Scott, all of whom invoked the roses in their depictions of the wars, the idea was irresistible. But was it really true? The answer, alas, is no. Modern historians have come to understand that the Wars of the Roses were far more complex and unpredictable than is suggested by their alluring title. The middle to late decades of the 15th century experienced sporadic periods of extreme violence, disorder, warfare and bloodshed, an unprecedented number of usurpations of the throne, the collapse of royal authority, an upheaval in the power politics of the English nobility, murders, betrayals, plots and coups, the savage elimination of the direct descendants of the last Plantagenet patriarch, King Edward III, and the arrival of a new royal dynasty, the Tudors, whose claim to the throne by right of blood was somewhere between highly tenuous and non-existent. It was a dangerous and uncertain period in which England's treacherous political life was driven by a cast of quite extraordinary characters, men and women alike, who sometimes resorted to unfathomable brutality and cruelty. The scale of the violence, the size and frequency of the battles that were fought, the rapidly shifting allegiances and motivations of the rivals, and the peculiar nature of the problems that were faced, were baffling to many contemporaries, and have remained so to many historians. This is one very good reason why a simple narrative of warring families split and reunited took root in the 16th century and has endured so long afterward. But it is also true that this version of history was deliberately encouraged in the 16th century for political ends. The Tudors, particularly Henry VII, promoted the Red Rose, White Rose myth vigorously, drawing on methods of dynastic propaganda that had been employed reaching far back to promote the dual monarchy of England and France during the Hundred Years' War. Their success is self-evident. Even today, with several generations of modern historians having put forward sophisticated explanations 
for the Wars of the Roses, drawing on research into late medieval law, economics, culture, and political thought, the simple Lancaster-York narrative is still the one that prevails when the 15th century becomes the subject of screen drama, popular fiction, and discussion in the press. Victory to the Tudors, then. The very notion of the Wars of the Roses continues to reflect that dynasty's innate genius for self-mythologizing. They were masters of the art. This book tells several overlapping stories. In the first place, it seeks to draw an authentic picture of this harsh and troubled period, looking where possible past the distorting lens of the 16th century and of Tudor historiography, and viewing the 15th century on its own terms. What we will find is the disastrous consequences of a near-total collapse in royal authority under the kingship of Henry VI, who began his rule as a wailing baby and ended it as a shambling simpleton, managing in between to trigger a crisis unique in its nature and unlike any of the previous constitutional moments of the late Middle Ages in England. This is a story, not of vain aristocrats attempting to overthrow the throne for their own personal gain, of bastard feudalism gone awry and over-mighty nobles scheming to wreck the realm, both have at times been explanations put forward for the wars, but of a polity battered on every side by catastrophe and hobbled by inept leadership. It is the story of a realm that descended into civil war despite the efforts of its most powerful figures to avert disaster. For nearly thirty years, Henry VI's hopeless rule was held together by the efforts of fine men and women, for they could only strain so hard. The second phase of our story examines the consequences of one man's decision that the best solution for this benighted realm was no longer to induce a weak king to govern his realm more competently, but to cast him aside and claim the crown for himself. The means by which Richard, Duke of York, did this weren't unprecedented, but they proved extremely destructive. To a crisis of authority was added a crisis of legitimacy, as the Yorkists began to argue that the right to rule was not only a matter of competence, but was carried in their blood. The second part of our story charts this stage of the conflict and its eventual settlement under the able and energetic King Edward IV, who re-established the authority and prestige of the crown, and, by the time of his death, appeared to have brought England back to some semblance of normalcy and good governance. The third part of our story asks a simple question. How on earth, from this point, did the Tudors end up kings and queens of England? The family spawned by the unlikely secret coupling of a widowed French princess and her Welsh servant during the late 1420s ought never to have found themselves anywhere near a crown. Yet, when Edward IV died in 1483 and his brother Richard III usurped the crown and killed Edward's sons, the Tudors suddenly became extremely important. The third strand of our story tracks their struggle to establish their own royal dynasty, one 
that would become the most majestic and imperious dynasty that England had ever known. Only from the slaughter and chaos of the 15th century could such a family have emerged triumphant, and only by continuing the slaughter could they secure their position. So as well as examining the Wars of the Roses as a whole, this book drills down into the early history of the Tudors, presenting them not according to their own myth, but as the 15th century really found them. Finally, this book examines the Tudors' struggles to keep the crown after 1485, and the process by which their history of the Wars of the Roses was established, how they created the popular vision of the 15th century so potent and memorable that it not only dominated the historical discourse of the 16th century, but has endured up to our own times. That, then, is the aim. My last book, The Plantagenets, told the story of the establishment of England's great medieval dynasty. This book tells the story of its destruction. The two books don't quite follow chronologically from each other, but they can, I hope, be read as a pair of complementary works. Here, as before, I aim to tell the tale of an extraordinary royal family in a way that is scholarly, informative, and entertaining. And so, to our story. In order fully to comprehend the process by which Plantagenet rule was destroyed and the Tudor dynasty established, we open not in the 1450s, when politics began to fracture into violence and warfare, nor in the 1440s, when the first signs of deep political turmoil emerged, not even in the 1430s, when the first English ancestors of the Tudor monarchs were born. Rather, our story starts in 1420, when England was the most powerful nation in Western Europe, its king the flower of the world, and its future apparently brighter than at any time before, a time when the idea that within a generation England would be the most troubled realm in Europe would have been little short of preposterous. As with so many tragedies, our story opens with a moment of triumph. Let us begin. Dan Jones, Battersea, London, February 2014 Part 1 Beginnings 1420-1437 a quote from King Henry VI, aged seventeen months. We were in perfect health. Chapter One King of All the World She was married in a soldier's wedding, shortly before midday on Trinity Sunday in June 1420. A large band of musicians struck up a triumphant tune as the elegant parish church of Saint-Jean-au-Marché in Troyes filled with splendidly dressed lords, knights, and noble ladies, gathered to observe the union of two great families who had long been set against each other. The Archbishop of Sens conducted the solemn proceedings in the traditional French fashion as Catherine de Valois, youngest daughter of the mad King of France, Charles VI, and his long-suffering wife, Isabeau of Bavaria, was wedded to Henry V, King of England. Catherine was eighteen years old. She had delicate features, a small, prim mouth and round eyes above high cheekbones. Her slender neck bent very slightly to one side, 
but this was a lone blemish upon the fine figure of the princess in the flush of youth. The man she was about to marry was a battle-hardened warrior. He had a drawn, clean-shaven face, pursed lips and a long nose, characteristic of the line of Plantagenet kings from whom he was descended. His dark, slightly protruding eyes bore a close resemblance to those of his father, Henry IV. His hair was cropped fashionably short to show the scars on his face, including one deep mark dating back to a battle fought when he was just sixteen, when an arrowhead lodged deep into his cheek, just to the right of his nose, and had to be cut out by a battlefield surgeon. At thirty-three, Henry V was the finest warrior among the European rulers of his day. His appearance on his wedding day was appropriately grand. Great pomp and magnificence were displayed by him and his princes, as if he were at that moment king of all the world, wrote the high-born and well-connected French chronicler Enguerrand de Monstrelet. The war-torn countryside around Troyes, the ancient capital of the French county of Champagne, one hundred miles southeast of Paris, had been bristling for a fortnight with English soldiers. Henry had arrived in town on May the 20th, accompanied by two of his three brothers, Thomas, Duke of Clarence, and John, Duke of Bedford, a large number of his aristocratic war captains, and some sixteen hundred other men, mostly archers. There was no room for them within the town walls, so most of Henry's regular men had been quartered in nearby villages. The king himself was staying in the western half of town at a smart hotel in the marketplace called La Couronne, the Crown. From this base he conducted himself in high majesty during negotiations for a final peace between the warring realms of England and France. In the seven years that had passed since the death of Henry IV, in 1413, Henry had settled an anxious realm. His father's reign had been beset by crises, many of them stemming from the fact that in 1399 he had deposed the ruling king Richard II, and subsequently had him murdered following an attempt to rescue him from jail. This was the violent beginning to an unstable reign. Richard hadn't been a popular king, but Henry IV's usurpation had triggered a crisis of legitimacy. He had suffered ongoing financial problems, a massive insurgency in Wales under Owain Glendour, and a series of northern rebellions, during one of which the Archbishop of York was beheaded for treason. He had been very ill for long stretches of his reign, which had led to clashes with his sons, particularly the young Henry, as they strove to exercise royal authority on his behalf. For all that Henry IV had tried to govern as a mighty and authoritative king, he had found himself reliant on the men who had helped him acquire the throne in the first place, principally his retainers from the Duchy of Lancaster, which had been his private landholding before he was crowned. This caused a long-running split in English politics, which only his death could remedy. It came after his final illness in the Jerusalem chamber of the abbot's house in Westminster on March the 20th, 1413. The accession of Henry V, king by right rather than conquest, 
reunited England under an undisputed leader. Henry was a vigorous, charismatic, confident king, an accomplished general, and an intelligent politician. His reign was notable for success in almost every area of government and warfare. Early on, he made significant gestures of reconciliation, offering forgiveness to rebels of his father's reign, and exhuming Richard II from his burial place in King's Langley, Hertfordshire, and transferring his remains to the tomb Richard had commissioned alongside his first wife, Anne of Bohemia, in Westminster Abbey. The central mission of his reign was to harness his close relations with his leading nobles to lead a war against France. In this, he had been wildly successful. In less than two years of fighting, Henry had pushed English power farther into the continent than at any time since the rule of Richard the Lionheart, more than two centuries before. Catherine's marriage to this energetic young warrior king represented the culmination of this audacious foreign policy. Kings of England had been fighting their French cousins for centuries, but only rarely with real success. Since 1337, the two kingdoms had been engaged in a period of particularly bitter hostility, which we now call the Hundred Years' War. Many territorial claims, counterclaims, and squabbles were folded into this complex and long-running dispute. Underpinning them all was a claim first made by Henry's great-grandfather Edward III to be the rightful king of both realms. Not even Edward, a superb campaigner and wily politician, had managed to realize the same. But in marrying Catherine, Henry was about to come tantalizingly close. With the Treaty of Troyes sealed in the city's cathedral on May the 21st, Henry hadn't only secured for himself a French bride. He also became, as he announced in the letter he dictated, Henry, by the grace of God, King of England, heir and regent of the realm of France, and Lord of Ireland. The Treaty of Troyes redirected the French succession, disinheriting Catherine's seventeen-year-old brother Charles, the last surviving son of Charles VI and Queen Isabeau, in favour of Henry and his future children. The French crown would pass for the first time into English hands. The Treaty of Troyes and the royal marriage that followed were made possible by the woeful condition of the French crown. For nearly thirty years, Charles VI had been suffering from a combination of paranoia, delusion, schizophrenia, and severe depression which came in bouts lasting for months at a time. He suffered his first attack while leading an army through the countryside near Le Mans on a hot day in August 1392. Dehydrated, highly stressed by a recent assassination attempt on one of his close friends, and frightened by a local madman who had shouted out that he faced treachery on the road ahead, he had been overcome by a violent fit, and had attacked his companions with his sword, killing five of them in an hour-long rampage. It took him nearly six weeks to recover, and from this point his life was dogged by psychotic episodes. Physicians at the time blamed Charles's mental abnormality 
on an excess of black bile, the wet or melancholy humour which was thought to make men susceptible to stress and illness. It was also speculated that his weak constitution was inherited. Charles's mother, Jean de Bourbon, had suffered a complete nervous breakdown following the birth of her eighth child, Isabelle. Whatever the diagnosis, the political effects of the king's condition were catastrophic. Incapacitating bouts of madness returned every year or so, crippling him physically and mentally. He would forget his own name, and the fact that he was a king with a wife and children. He treated the queen with suspicion and hostility, and tried to destroy plates and windows bearing her arms. At times he trembled and screamed that he felt as though a thousand sharp iron spikes were piercing his flesh. He would run wildly about the royal residence in Paris, known as the Hôtel Saint-Paul, until he collapsed from exhaustion, worrying his servants so much that they walled up most of the palace doors to stop him from escaping and embarrassing himself in the street. He refused to bathe, change his clothes or sleep at regular intervals for months on end. On at least one occasion, when servants broke into his chambers to attempt to wash and change him, they found him mangy with the pox and covered in his own feces. A Regency Council was established to rule France during the increasingly frequent periods of his indisposition. Yet even when Charles was deemed sane enough to rule, his authority was debilitated by the fact that he might at any moment relapse into lunacy. The madness of King Charles had caused a power vacuum in France. All medieval crowns relied on a sane and stable head beneath them, and Charles VI's derangement was responsible for, or at the very least severely exacerbated, a period of violent unrest and civil war which erupted in 1407 between two powerful and ruthless groups of French noblemen and their supporters. The initial protagonists were Philip the Bold, Duke of Burgundy, and Louis de Valois, Duke of Orléans, who was the king's brother. They quarrelled over land, personal differences, and, above all, their relative influence over the Regency Council. When Louis of Orléans was stabbed to death in the streets of Paris on November the 23rd, 1407, by fifteen masked men loyal to Philip the Bold's son and heir, John the Fearless, murder and treachery became the defining characteristics of French politics. Louis's eldest son, Charles, built an alliance with his father-in-law, Bernard, Count of Armagnac, and France swiftly divided into two rival power blocks, as the leading men of the realm split their allegiance between the warring parties. The standoff between the Burgundians and the Armagnacs had begun. Henry V had played the two sides of the French civil war against each other with startling success. In 1412, he signed a treaty with the Armagnacs, offering them his support in return for recognition of English lordship over several important territories in southwest France, Poitou, Angoulême, and Périgord, all of which had ancient connections to the English crown. The treaty didn't last long. By 1415, 
Henry had increased his demands to include English sovereignty over Normandy, Anjou, Maine, Touraine, and Brittany. This was no arbitrary clutch of estates. He was claiming the lands once controlled by his 12th-century Plantagenet ancestors, Henry II and Richard the Lionheart. When the Armagnacs refused, Henry invaded Normandy and besieged and conquered Arfleur, the port town at the mouth of the Seine. He then raided his way across the French countryside before finally engaging an enormous French army at Agincourt on St. Crispin's Day, Friday, October the 25th, 1415. The two armies met on a ploughed field, the mud beneath their feet thickened by heavy rain. Despite the size of the French army, which was perhaps six times that of Henry's, superior tactics and outstanding generalship gave the English the advantage. Henry relied heavily on the use of longbows, which were capable of causing havoc on a crowded battlefield. The king protected his archers from cavalry attacks by driving sharpened stakes into the ground around them, and the bowmen repaid him, firing volley after volley through the air toward the French and their horses, and the men-at-arms who attempted to cross the battlefield on foot. Numerical advantage meant nothing when the sky rained arrows, and a terrific slaughter ensued. In the words of one eyewitness, the living fell on the dead, and others falling on the living were killed in turn. The deaths were disastrously one-sided. More than ten thousand Frenchmen were killed for the loss of perhaps as few as a hundred and fifty English. To prevent any threat of the enemy regrouping, Henry ordered thousands of prisoners and casualties to be killed when the battle was over, with only the highest ranking spared for ransom. Yet, despite this unchivalrous and ruthless command, he had won an astonishing victory and was hailed as a hero. When the news of Agincourt reached England, wild parties broke out, and when Henry returned to London following the battle, he was greeted like a new Alexander. Girls and boys dressed as angels with golden face paint sang, Hail, Flower of England, Knight of Christendom, and huge mock castles were erected in the streets. It isn't recorded, wrote one admiring chronicler, that any king of England ever accomplished so much in so short a time and returned to his own realm with so great and glorious a triumph. In the years that followed Agincourt, Henry had returned to France to make even more spectacular gains. In July 1417, he launched a systematic conquest of Normandy, landing in the mouth of the River Touc, before besieging and brutally sacking Caen, followed by the important military towns of M, C, Argenton, Alençon, Falaise, Avranches, and Cherbourg, along with every significant town and castle in between. Rouen, the capital of the duchy, was besieged and starved inhumanly into submission between July 1418 and January 1419. Refugees cast out of the city were refused passage through the English lines, and simply left to die of hunger in no man's land. By the late summer, Henry had become the first English king effectively in command of Normandy 
since his ancestor King John had been chased out by Philip II of France in 1204. Paris lay within his sights. With the English menacing their way down the Seine toward the French capital, all of France descended into terrified chaos. Had the Burgundians and Armagnacs been able to resolve their differences and oppose Henry as one, the realm might have been saved. They couldn't. At a crisis meeting held between the factions on a bridge in the town of Montereau on September the 10th, 1419, John the Fearless, Duke of Burgundy, who had claimed control of the king, queen, and court, was murdered by an Armagnac loyalist who smashed his face and head with an axe. Many years later, the Duke's skull was kept as a curiosity by the Carthusian monks at Dijon. The prior of the monastery, showing the skull to the visiting King Francois I, explained that it was through the hole in his cranium that the English had entered France. Queen Isabeau and the Burgundians now viewed any other end to the war as preferable to making peace with the detested and treacherous Armagnacs. They sued for peace with Henry, offering him the greatest gift in their possession, the French crown. Charles VI was so far gone that he was quite unfit to take part in the negotiations pertaining to the future of his own crown. The peace was sealed in the Cathedral of Troyes on May the 21st, 1420. Its very first clause provided for the marriage of the Princess Kathleen and Henry V, King of England, and now heir and regent of the realm of France. Catherine's marriage was therefore momentous for both royal houses. French princesses had married Plantagenet kings before. Indeed, it was a union between Edward II of England and Isabella of France in 1308 that had mingled rival royal blood sufficiently to provoke the Hundred Years' War in the first place. Never before, however, had an English and French dynasty come together with the specific aim of settling their two crowns on a single king, as would now be the case, whenever the merciful death of the poor, demented fifty-one-year-old Charles finally came. The ceremony had its moments of splendour. One later chronicler recorded that on their betrothal, Henry had given Catherine a beautiful and priceless ring as a token of his esteem. He certainly gave a generous cash gift of two hundred nobles to the church in which they were married. French protocol was followed, so a procession would have made its way on the night of the wedding to the couple's chamber, where the archbishop blessed the royal bed and gave them soup and wine for their supper. When Henry's English guests wrote letters home, they referred to the celebrations in only the most cursory fashion. There were more important matters at hand. Immediately after the couple was married, the king told the knights in his company that they would be leaving Troyes directly the next day to lay siege to Sens, a day's march to the west, where Catherine's brother Charles, now a pretender to the throne, was ensconced with his Armagnac supporters. There would be no ceremonial jousting held to mark the royal wedding. According to a Parisian diarist of the times, Henry told his men that fighting for real at Sens was of infinitely greater value than the mock battle of the tournament field. 
We may all tilt and joust and prove our daring and worth, for there is no finer act of courage in the world than to punish evildoers so that poor people can live. As Henry and his followers marched off to pursue their long and bloody war, Catherine was allowed to travel with her mother and father. She spent the winter watching her husband's men move from town to town, laying sieges and either starving or slaughtering their enemies into submission. On December the 1st, 1420, she watched as her father accompanied Henry on his first formal entry into Paris, where the Treaty of Troyes was formalized, and the official process of disinheriting her brother, referred to in official English documents as Charles bearing himself for the Dauphin, was completed. Two months later, Catherine set sail from Calais for Dover, leaving behind the country of her birth to begin a new life across the sea. She landed on February the 1st, 1421, and immediately prepared for her coronation. The England in which Catherine arrived early in 1421 was a strong, stable realm, more politically united under Henry's leadership than perhaps at any time in its history. During the long centuries of Plantagenet rule, English kings had steadily increased the scope of their power, governing in usually fruitful consultation with their great magnates, barons, the commons in Parliament, and the Church. England was unmistakably a war state, taxed hard to pay for adventures overseas, but in the aftermath of Agincourt and the steady succession of victories that followed, the realm endured its financial burdens, buoyed by a strong sense of triumph. Although Thomas Walsingham, a monastic chronicler based in St. Albans, Hertfordshire, wrote that the year preceding Catherine's arrival had been won in which there had been a desperate shortage and want of money, even among the ordinary people there were scarcely enough pennies remained for them to be able to lay up sufficient supplies of corn. He noted that it was also a year of fertile crops and a rich harvest of fruit. The most common medieval analogy for a state was the literal body politic, with the king as the head. When the head is infirm, the body is infirm. Where a virtuous king doesn't rule, the people are unsound and lack good morals, wrote the contemporary poet and moralist John Gower. In this respect, England and France couldn't have been more different. Henry was without doubt a virtuous, perhaps even a virtuoso, king, and his realm had accordingly flourished. Henry had enjoyed a thorough political education in adolescence that in adulthood manifested itself in strong and capable kingship, based confidently on his birthright. He was personally charismatic, liked and trusted by his leading nobles, and successful enough in war to create a tight-knit military fraternity. He had three loyal and able brothers, Thomas, Duke of Clarence, John, Duke of Bedford, and Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester, all of whom were of great value both in governing the realm and pursuing the war abroad. Henry met with the approval of the English Church for his vigour in hunting out Lollards, a heretical sect who followed the teachings of the scholar John Wycliffe, 
and held unorthodox views about the dogma of the Catholic Church and the validity of his teachings. He taxed his realm relentlessly, but his personal household expenses were markedly frugal, his exchequer competently run, and his war debts relatively controlled. He pleased the people in the shires of England with a tough but impartial drive to re-establish the rule of royal law and stamp out the disorder that had bedeviled his father's reign. Criminals were often drafted into military service, where their violent instincts could be safely satisfied pillaging and burning among the villages of France. May gracious God now save our king, his people, and his well-willing, give him good life and good ending, that we with mirth may safely sing Deo Gracias, thanks be to God, went a popular song of the time, and with good reason, for the prosperous kingdom of England reflected all the virtue of its mighty ruler. Catherine's place in her new realm was established immediately on her arrival. The French chronicler Monsolet heard that she was received as if she had been an angel of God. The nineteen-year-old queen was provided with a personal staff of her husband's choosing. The information that reached Walsingham from court was that the queen... Thank you for listening to this episode of All Things Plantagenet. Remember, we also have a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com, where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the other episodes. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.